0: Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by it's so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of valuable stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. Today I'm going to bring you a winding, mesmeric conversation with writer, co-founder of Unbound Publishing, Dan Kieran. Lock yourself in for this one. It's a belter and we get deep into the themes of creativity and instinct and feeling over logic. Why creativity must be so and how we must learn to see those crumbs left in our path by others if we're to find the right way for ourselves. Hello and welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast. My name is Ben Tallon. I'm your host. This is a good one today. I mean, they're all good ones. It's my show. Could I say any different? (laughs) Of course not. They're all good for different reasons. Uh, But this is a belter. This is a long one. So strap yourself in, like I said, at the top of the show. Because Dan and I talk about all kinds of themes within creativity and feeling and logic and why... It's very hard to articulate many of the truths in following an artistic, creative path. It's forever historically been the conundrum, hasn't it? Dan is an author of many books, including I Fought in the Law, The Idle Traveller, Surfboard... What else has he done? What else has he done? Um, Crap Towns... <laughs> um, some cool stuff, a real broad range. Real smart guy, lots of experience in business, in creativity, as a writer, and as a big part, as a co-founder of Unbound. So for, for anyone who's aware of Unbound, you'll know exactly what they're about. They're a crowdfunded publisher. So they were dissatisfied. As three authors, Dan and his co-founders were dissatisfied with the existing publishing model of how publishers would follow the same tropes, the same trends of big selling books and not step outside of those boxes that they would set for themselves. And they felt that a lot of great authors and books were going by the wayside when there could be something different. So Dan talks with great pride about everything that he achieved with his colleagues at Unbound. Um, Over 10 years, and about the decision to leave and why it was right for him, but very difficult to articulate or quantify in terms of pros and cons for people around him. You know, he likens it to a decision when someone stops drinking. And I would also throw, you know, going vegan in that pot. These get these decisions get people's backs up in a remarkable way. Not just get their backs up, but people struggle to understand, you know, with the, some decisions that we make because we are so used to the parameters of making more conventional understandable decisions for the broader audience that it's, it's hard and creativity comes under that bracket because it, it doesn't really fall into logic does it you can't explain one person's path about why everything felt right and led them to this you know amazing career as a musician or a writer or a, an artist or a sculptor when parents want you to go and be a lawyer or whatever because it's a good career and it brings in a big salary and all that stuff when we just feel different um and as dan explains there's he he learned through research in neuroscience that the part of the brain responsible for making decisions has no capacity for language really interesting stuff so we're going to get into all of that Go and check out his books, there's some belters. I recently finished a surfboard and found it quite mind-blowing because it's, it taps into challenging the, the stories, the narratives we tell ourselves about ourselves that often limit what we do with our lives and our careers. And Dan found himself at a time of life when he was perhaps quite confused or a little down on where he was and starting to feel restless about what he was doing at Homebound and um, the need for change. And the surfboard is a very clever device where he goes away to the seaside in Cornwall to make a surfboard. And through that process of working with his hands, learns to overcome a few hurdles and barriers that he'd maybe set in place for himself. And begins to look at his life in a different way. And it's a fantastic read that I recommend to anyone. Um, so I'm not going to prattle on for too long because... The conversation says everything so once again a big thank you to the founding supporter of this show illustration x who you can check out on we are illustrationx.com go and have a look at all their portfolios they've got animators mural specialists live illustrators hand letterers editorial illustrators People doing CGI, it goes on and on. They represent a broad global audience and they do it very, very well while supporting the creative industry through initiatives like sponsoring this podcast. So go and have a look illustrationx.com or we are IllustrationX on social media. Without further ado, I'm going to take you to my conversation with Dan Kieran. Enjoy.
1: I had creativity, it was, was always a massive part of my job, but in quite a sad way. So I was a real When I was really young, I was a bit of a violin prodigy. Mm. Um, I got a scholarship to Wales Cathedral School. But my dad went to boarding school and was like, there's no way he's going to boarding school, so I didn't go. But I played violin, and I had an amazing teacher called Mr Chittock, who used to say things like, you don't play with your fingers, you play with your heart. Mm. Um, And he taught the Suzuki method of violin, and I loved it. And that was the first time I think I had what I'm, am obsessed with flow states when you get your head into a place where you're not, a bit like Prince, you're not doing it, you're being it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I got that very early playing the violin um, and I loved it and it was, it was a bit like talking but it was better than talking because it was, I could say more with it or something. I mean I'm an, I'm 47 and I'm looking back to being four to six so I maybe, and maybe adding meaning where there wasn't any, but it was just very instinctive. But I used to be taught violin in this little hut in the primary school in West Wellow, not far from here. And then one day the blinds were down and my lessons were over. And I wasn't told why, but subsequently found out that he'd committed suicide. Oh. And I tried, they, my parents found new violin teachers, um, but I hated it. Something had gone with him. So I stopped. Mm. So, I think, looking back on it, I sort of had what I was just saying. I had that moment of like, this is it, I know what I'm doing, this is it, this is my path. And then I kind of lost the path. Mm-hmm. And I never really got back, I never really got back to it until I saw my first ever concert was Prince. yeah. And that's the first time, I was 14, I think, and that was the first time after playing, I stopped playing the violin, that I danced, that I really let go. Mm. So sort of creatively I definitely feel like I'm not that I was supposed to be a musical person but sort of felt like that's where that was sort of what I was geared up for maybe Mm. in a deep way Um, but of course by the time by the time I'd gone through that and then I was a teenager and then I basically started to smoke a lot of weed Mm. Um, and my parents split up and I kind of got quite nihilistic. Mm. Um, I didn't get into hard drugs or anything, but I got very, very ill. I had a very bad mental health and I had really bad panic attacks and, and it took me a long time. I was agoraphobic for a year. Like, I got mm. really ill. I um, never really linked that to the music or to that thing happening, but maybe they are together. I don't know. So I sort of came... I sort of didn't really have a 20s. Like, I didn't really, because when you're agoraphobic, you basically just want to disappear. You don't really want, and you sort of deliberately trash your relationships because you don't want, you don't want to let anybody down. And you can't, because you can't go anywhere. You feel really frightened to leave your house. I suppose I was just dissolving. But I was writing a lot. I think that's what I did when I was in that place because I felt like if I could write, I wasn't wasting my life or something. Like if I was writing in that state, Mm. um, then I had meaning and I sort of had purpose and I wasn't very good, but I sort of, I think I knew then that that's what, that was my new thing. That was my new music. Um, So, I mean, that makes my childhood sound very bleak. It wasn't. I had a fantastic time loving, supportive family, but I just... That's what I remember creatively. I remember being very lost. School was a complete disaster for me. Mm. Like, I never got better than a B in English. Um, I was a classic, sort of mid-level, ordinary kid, but I didn't feel ordinary, and I just... I felt like they were teaching me the wrong things. That's how I felt. So I didn't really do very well through the education system, and then my parents splitting up and smoking a lot of weed meant that I did very badly in exams.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: but again, turned out to be a real amazing thing because it meant I didn't get a degree, which turned out to be the best thing that could happen to me. Because I think for a lot of people, their degree becomes their safety net. But because I don't have one, I've never had a safety net. Mm. So I never have a reason not to do the thing I want to do. Mm. So, from the outside, I've made decisions which people think are a bit mad, but they never seem mad because I don't, I don't have an alternative, so they almost seem the safer option somehow. Yeah. Um, and that's a very good creative instinct, creatively, to yeah. have that kind of... It's very punk. Like, I just fucking do it. I yeah. just write a book, even though I've never... Looked. I mean, my first book was I built a website. I didn't add a code. I'd failed maths pretty much, did terribly maths. But I was working at the Island Magazine and they needed a website and I said, like, well, I'll just learn. I bought a book and I learned and I wasn't very good, but I was good enough, mm-hmm. which is a really important, good enough is a really important <laughs> thing in my life. And good
0: enough means you can get better. You haven't been poisoned by perfection.
1: Right. There you go. That's put, you put it much better than I did. Exactly right. Yeah. You're not, you're just happy to be doing it. Right. And I mm-hmm. think that's the thing I've always had. I've just always just wanted, just wanted to be doing the thing. Mm. Um, And that website turned into a huge, it was huge. It went viral and went crazy and it um, resulted in Crap Towns, which was my first book. And then I'd never done a book before. I mean, I did it with another guy who was, um, he did more of the heavy lifting. I sort of did the website. He did more of the heavy lifting on the editing because I can't really spell and my Mm. punctuation is terrible. Um, But that was a huge smash hit. And then once you've had a big hit in publishing, publishers want you to do more books because you might do it again.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I kind of got better at writing in public. You know, I learned to write by writing books and some were better than others. And I still don't feel like I've done a completely great book. I feel Mm. like I've done an 80% great book. (laughs) It's never quite. So I I definitely have that. I've learned to do it by somebody commissioning me, which Mm. is a very fortunate position quite exposing. Yeah. One of my books got torn apart in it was the Literary Review or somewhere like that, and which was very painful. But it was. But again, I was writing. I was doing it. I was learning mm-hmm. as I did it, and I think I'm. I'm good enough now. I'm good enough for myself. Yeah. To kind of, and I'll never. Well, you, as you know, you never. You never finish being a writer. Oh. You never finish a book.
0: You just get I forced to make about it, about it at it. some point. You don't. I don't think anyone looks back on anything they've created. I mean, maybe it's very, I think it's very misguided if they do. If they look back and go, "That's a masterpiece." Yeah, I, you know, I, find, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's very. That's a warning. It's the son. wrong kind of confidence, isn't it? Let's face it, it's ego, really. Yeah, and, and not to say we should all be, you know, very modest and British about everything. There's. Yeah. I'm very happy with all of my books. I know I'll look back on them in ten years' time and probably go. I doing mean, I'm doing it right now. I'm editing Champagne right. for a new ebook edition. Right. Now that it's come back into my hands from the publisher, and. Um, I'm just, I can't help myself just tidying up little sentences as I go and I'm like <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's beautiful as well because I, I also don't want to do that too much because that has, yeah. that has to live as it lived and it, and it
1: there, yeah I mean yeah. I definitely feel that I re- don't read my book like once every 10 years I might pick one up and just have mm-hmm. a look at it and every time I do that I wince but I also feel proud that I was prepared to put myself out there and mm-hmm. it's authentic they're never fake yeah as long as you fucking mean it it's fine Mm -hmm. and I always mean it and I always meant it so I'm proud of them and weirdly I see them as like the the older I get the more I just see them as my kids Mm -hmm. I want my kids to have they'll get a much better insight into who I am and what I am by Mm -hmm. reading those books and the progression I think I'm making in those books over time And, you know, I'm trying to work out the meaning of life. That's my obsession is I want to learn. I want to find out what it means to live before I die. That's my, that's what I'm here for. That's what I'm, what is my purpose. Mm. So my books are my attempt to do that through the experiences I'm writing about. And my kids are in them, like they're all in them. I wrote one, my first proper one when Wilf was basically the age Poppy is now, um, and they all sort of have a book that mm. I was doing. Idle Traveller, Olive was that age. Yeah. Um, Surfboard, Ted was that age. Yeah. Um, and I'm doing, I'm doing a few now, which I haven't worked out which one's going to be Poppies, but they're in my head the whole time. They were in my head the whole time I was writing those books. I mean, the other were kids were also in my head when I was writing those books, but there's something about that age, as you know, you're in it right now. Mm-hmm. The kind of one and a half to four yeah, is the kind of, it's just the golden years mm-hmm. because of what you learn about yourself and you just see them as such a privilege to be around yeah. them. I find that just so inspiring creatively to just, I don't know, it's the warmth, it's the love. I don't know what it is, but there's something about that time when I just want to be the best version of me I can be for mm-hmm. them and for myself and... Some some element of that is distilled in the books because that's when I'm most curious. I think yeah I think that's what it is. It's just that's when I get most curious about myself and the world and
0: mm-hmm. I Don't think I would have been any more productive had I not had these twins Because <laughs> I just think I'm more resourceful with the time that I do have but also the ideas and the change in my life that the, the Seismic change in my life that these guys have brought yeah the shifts and my thinking and, you know, and, and everything else is just, I mean, it's monumental. So it's it, the, the stuff that I am producing and maybe I look back and used to come and go, oh my God, we know it was like. But that's, I, like you said, it's real. So it can, yeah, it, it, so it can't be wrong. It lives. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that's enough. So.
1: I, I totally agree with that. I, my brother, who doesn't have kids yet, and um, he, a few months ago, he was like, you've got four kids. I mean, I was still running unbound. then. he you're running a business. You've got a dog. Married, like how do you how the fuck do you fit everything in? And I was a bit like, well, and I, for some reason, the image of a pencil sharpener just came into my head. And it's like, and I was like, oh no, you just it just sharpens your attention. Mm-hmm. So you're just not vague when you have that much going on. You can't yeah. be vague. So you're just really, really precise. And you're like, mm-hmm. well, I've got this much time to do this thing. And and writing is like, I don't need the muse. I just need to fuck half a fucking hour <laughs> without somebody wanting something or having to go somewhere. Or, and I don't say that out of, like, grumpiness. I just mean, give me fucking half an hour mm-hmm. because I am... It's all going on while yeah. I'm doing those things. And then it, when I get my half an hour, it's just like, bam.
0: High focus, yeah.
1: No fucking like... It used to take me ages to do anything half decent and now I'm like... I've sort of worked it out in my head. And then so when I get the time, it's just like... Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you can always improve it. But, so, yeah, and I totally... I think they've sharpened me. Yeah, I think not having time has just sharpened my focus.
0: Mm-hmm. Your parameters have become the reasons you've done the thing. If yeah, yeah. somebody else, those parameters will be the reason that they can't slash won't do it. Okay. And that's a an ind- very individual thing, of course, yeah. because everyone's wired differently. So some people will just... Be physically or, or mentally unable to do that and to juggle all that stuff, which is absolutely fine because some people, you know, you, otherwise you break. But then there is a degree of, I think, of being able to kind of reframe certain things and turn them into opportunities. It and I think that took like experience as well and life. You know, you have to learn with life to do that. Yeah,
1: you don't have a choice. Do you? what lessons do you get given? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's that one of the I met the artist he's like a writer artist called Billy Childish many many years ago he's a really interesting guy and he said to me once that the um no limitation is the biggest limitation of all Mm -hmm. so you sort of need those things confining you for it uh for it to come and yeah it's like the wellspring isn't it it's just that that pressure helps it come out somehow yeah um I definitely felt that with business I was running because I didn't really I wrote the surfboard I did the idol traveler just as it was starting which was that's my 80% good book but I think I've done it an 80% good book but <clears throat> I'm really proud of that one um and then I did one about five years later I did the surfboard when I was in the business and I very deliberately wanted to do it because I wanted to I wanted to see where my head was Mm. because I wasn't I knew I was in a weird place but I wasn't sure how weird and now it's great to read because it's like okay that was such a great um way of showing where you're where you are where I was at that time Mm -hmm. so yeah I definitely think the conditions not dictate the creativity but they definitely create the pace of it coming out of you yeah um and I don't know I sort of feel like you're your creative brain is your creative output, certainly for me. It's like that's when I'm at my peak as an individual. Like, mm. That's me being my best. <laughs> yeah. Because I definitely feel like you channel. I'm becoming more weird as I get older, but I definitely feel like there's a sort of universal consciousness there are, I, that you don't have ideas, they have you. And if you're setting yourself up in alignment with who you are and the way you want your life to live, then you get more you kind of receive more or you're mm-hmm. more open to stuff. Um, and so the, the conditions you find yourself in don't dictate how you, what you do, but I definitely feel they can steer you in a it's more like a compass for me mm-hmm. if I'm in alignment with those things and I feel in alignment with who I am and what I care about. Mm. Then the compass of my creativity is broader. Um, and it's sort of, and that, and it, it pushes me forward itself. Yeah. Um, that's what I'm interested in at the moment. Not the books so much, more as the headspace I need to live in for those ideas to come and for the books to come. Yeah. But not just the books, other opportunities related to them come and I'm doing a bit of teaching in a few weeks, which I'm really excited about, which happened, I think, cause I'm in that the right headspace for me and it's something I wanted to do and it sort of appears mm-hmm. so I think you can kind of there's something outside of us that you can tap into yeah. I think that's how I feel about it that it's sort of like it's there and if you can correct yourself in the right way um, it's kind of limitless what you can do yeah. and that's when going back to like the Prince and Damon Albans and Taylor Swift of this world I feel like that's what they they yeah. show you they show you that if you do gear yourself up in that way it's kind of no there's literally no limit i mean they all all, all did the most are doing the most incredible stuff have enormous range and you you don't see the tortured artist that's not the vibe i'm getting i'm getting the things are really great and this is stuff's happening and i'm thrilled and here you are mm-hmm. and that's how i want to be i want to get myself into that place and yeah I, and i don't think it's money i think a lot of people think if only i had enough money i'd be there No, no, no. i don't think it is that actually they, they happen to all be very rich prince obviously not with us anymore but i don't think that's a precondition and i think part of our problem in the world is that we feel like we need that precondition yeah and that unfortunately takes us far away from the alignment thing you need to be to live creatively somehow
0: mm-hmm. well it's true i mean it has to be, it has to be creatively led because you know, I've made my living for thirteen and a half years from creativity, Yeah. which is a wonderful privilege. But it's always been authentic. I've not known any other way. You know, just my upbringing and and the circumstances in a very accidental, stumbly path. And it's like, you know, I think it's very true. And um, and I think ultimately, you know, would would you be prepared to go through those big steal or borrow years? If there wasn't some personal attachment, I certainly don't know if I would be. I think I would have very quickly looked for something better paying or trained for a better job if it was just about money, personally. I, I think I was always prepared to take those. You know, I think my first year was about, I was working full time, first one was about two and a half grand I made which was awesome at the time because I have two and a half grand on top of a full-time job. So yeah. I, like, I made that for my illustration. That yeah, day, yeah God, amazing. I could, that yeah. maybe I could do this. So it was like
1: a side project to begin with that
0: you yeah. became the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, it was always a case of I, I, knew that I, I knew personally that I would buckle under financial pressure if I'd done what some friends had done, which was live off beans on toast and throw themselves headlong into it, but they yeah. had the characters to do that and made it work very well. Right. I me, mean, no, I, 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 at least I, I knew I was self-aware enough to know that I would destroy me and I, and I yeah. wouldn't handle the... I would be pestering clients to the point of obsession. Be too needy, which pushes it. things away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, even at that early stage, I had that sense to, to know that, and I think. And I think that working full-time not only gave me income, but also gave me... Um, you know, new social circles, new stories, borrowed from people. Yeah, yeah, so okay. it all fed where I was in life, and even even though I felt completely lost after university for the first six months, especially, I was having fun in my life. You know, I was meeting some real eccentric yeah, good characters. Material. That's where. That's in. the thing with
1: writing is everything is material. Yeah. Good, and like, oh god, something over. fucking horrendous happens, and that's that's. I can't remember who said it. That sliver of ice in your heart, if you're a writer, like hundred percent, something really bad happens to me. Like, Okay, well this this is great because this means that I can now have an insight into this feeling, and I can I'll use that at some point. Yeah, and it can't help; it's just can't help it.
0: No, well, I mean, one of my current books at the minute, of the topic is like the potential end of my life and civilization. Like, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to really go there, it's like, <laughs> you know? So it's God. I come up with a title for the other night was. Uh, Doom. It was the Doom Scrolls. The Doom oh, Scrolls. Nice. And the, oh, yeah, that's um, very good. And the subtitle, oh, the subtitle was Facing the End of All of Us Alone. <laughs> and it's kind of an eco you know, eco-anxiety kind of. Am I the like, only oh, one really feeling any of this? Yeah, like, ah, yeah, oh, yeah. like it's that. But again, in you know, your mum, snappy yeah, moments yeah, in time yeah. conversation, snatches it. So that's great, where well,
1: it's very, of, very current. I mean, things are so bleak, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to. It, it, that's oh, a. Mis- I don't know. I mean, I'm
1: such an drive my friends insane so I'm such an optimist mm. but I just see what we're for the sake of people listening is the day after Liz Truss has been well she's become Prime Minister um, but I just see this as we are going through the death throes of the era of the old white man. Yeah. that's that's why it's so painful. Like, they just can't handle all these other people getting to say so say what they think and okay. how they feel, and they can't fucking handle
0: it. I think that's where the, the kick, the stubbornness is coming from. Yeah, yeah. so, uh,
1: but I feel like that's just generationally. Like, when I was, I, mean, I don't know if it's the same when you're at school, when I was at school, you know, if you're, if an MP was found out to be gay, they were exposed on the front page of the newspaper and lost their job. Mm. Like, now, that just seems, you fuck, like, that just doesn't talk to my kids. They're just, if you're gay or trans or, they just they just wonder what the fuck the fuss is about they have no okay. idea what all this hang-ups is about so i feel like on the one hand things are terrible but also it's the genie's out of the bottle right these people are just yeah they just fighting to fuck it all up yeah and before they're, and they're they lose it
0: and they're appealing to the last bastions of that to a, to a, to a certain point yeah i mean you know. i mean they'll
1: take us to the brink of nuclear war mm-hmm. it's so it's there's no doubt we're in a serious moment but i, I sort of feel like they're they're losing but it's yeah. hard to say that. If you can't get a fucking abortion in America, you sort of think, hang on, are we winning? But I, I just feel like... Yeah,
0: it's, 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 like you said, the battle is being Yeah, it's a like real it's, battle, obviously. It it's Helm's Deep, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: but I feel like... That's exactly right. it is. It looks yeah. the sun on the third day.
0: Yeah.
1: That's, <laughs> yeah. that's going to come.
0: So let's talk about Unbound then. I've never asked you what was the seed of that idea. Like, What was the... The seed? The well, it's
1: there. interesting to talk about Lord of the Rings. Like... The in joke among the founders was that we're in Lord of the Rings mm. and Amazon was the Dark Lord Sauron
2: yeah.
1: with the eye, the all-seeing eye was Amazon <laughs> and we were like, we're the hobbits, we're mm. going to come and change publishing and they're not going to notice because we're these little writers that don't know what we're doing. Mm. I mean, delusions of grandeur much, but there you go. Um, basically, I it was the crash, so I'd, I'd written lots of... The Crap Challenge is a huge hit, sold, sold like 150,000 copies or something. It was number five on the bestseller list, which basically means you can not do what you want, but it means publishers will look at your proposals very seriously, mm-hmm. um, more so than someone that hasn't done a bestseller. It's just the nature of the business. Publishing is they're just looking for bestsellers, and they're looking to replicate books that have already been bestsellers. John, my co-founder, described it then, and it's the same now as agribusiness. Mm. Publishers have five crops that they farm. TV tie and genre fiction. You know the, you know, celebrity memoir. You just that's what they do, and they're very they get good yields. You know they know what they're doing, and they get a crime author and get a book a year, thirty years, mm-hmm. and then when the crime writer gets old, they'll start to co-write with a new writer, who then takes over the mantle, if not the brand or goes out on their own. And it's, you know, if you like this, you'll like that. Um, algorithmic book selling. Now, this was an issue back when we started a band in like 2010, but it wasn't, it's become even more sophisticated now. But essentially, I'd done lots of books and I'd had huge hits. I mean, one of my books was a massive hit in Germany. I felt like I'd you never know exactly how many you've sold because they don't tell you, which is another problem of the industry. But I'd sold somewhere between three hundred and five hundred thousand and 500,000 copies of my books around the world because lots of them are sold all over the world. And the crash of 2008 happened and I put in my proposal for a book about this thing called Spielzeug, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit. Mm. But that was very much this thing about living in alignment. I felt like here was a signpost, I'm supposed to follow this idea. And... The publishers were like, okay, well you, the way to do it is to do it like nudge, do it like a business book. And I did a proposal and I was about to get signed up. And then they said, you know what? We've realised you're not really qualified to write a business book. So we can't do it like that. Unfortunately, we're not going to do the book. And I sent it to other publishers who were like, we love the idea. But, you know, the crash of 2008, it just happened. Everyone was much more risk averse. And I basically didn't get a deal for that book. Um... And I was doing minimum wage again, because I talked about not having a degree, I don't have any degree, I had no qualifications, never had a CV, never had a job, really, at that stage. Um, and I was back doing minimum wage, clearing out the rat-infested basement of an accountant in Bognor Regis, which had featured prominently in Crap Towns ten years before, five years <laughs> before. was a dark
0: irony. Yeah. And I
1: was on the beach, looking out to sea, and I was thinking, I've just been so stupid. I've... Spent 10 years building a writing career, and I've sold all these books, but I would have the name and address of a single person that's ever bought one.
2: Mm.
1: I could may as well just try and fucking swim on, to go and find them. It was just, just, I just felt so stupid. So I was kind of went home depressed, thinking, okay, well, fuck it, I'm going to, I'll just do it myself, which is this, the kind of punk attitude, fuck it. I'll do a YouTube video about the book I want to write, because I think it's the best book idea I've ever had, and I want to do it. And I'll set up a PayPal account, and then if enough people give me money, then I'll write the book, and I'll send them either a physical copy or an e-book when I've done it. And I was talking at the time I was doing a bit of research for the TV show QI, because I knew I'm, I'm friends with the guy who produced it, John Lloyd, who did um, Spitting Image and Blackadder and those sorts of things. Real, amazing man, a lovely, real generous guy. And I, and I was doing some research for the books with John Mitchinson who I subsequently co-founded Unbound with who also co-founded QI. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: and I was just meeting them for a drink in London um, after they'd just done a, a session on the show um, and I'd, we got drunk, you know, three authors moaning, all of us had best selling books, one description <laughs> another, and we're all moaning about publishing and I'm like, yeah, fuck it, I'm just going to do it myself, I'm just going to do this video and I'm going to tell people the idea. And, and John sort of looked at me a bit weirdly and he said, you heard of Kickstarter? And I was like, no. And it was like nine months old or a year old at that time. I said, well, it's, that's what, this is, there's this new thing called crowdfunding. you said, you're, that's what you're doing, but you should, have you thought about doing a Kickstarter? And I was like, well, maybe, but I don't know about Kickstarter. Anyway, by the end of the conversation, we were like, all authors are in the same boat we're all in a situation where publishers are telling us what readers want, but they don't actually know because they sell books to shops, not readers. Mm. Someone's got to build a platform that allows authors to connect directly with their audience. Um, And that's when Unbound began. Mm. Um, And they were both, had jobs, and I had no job. So they were like, you should be CEO. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, and it was amazing because at that time although it was a recession as we're about to discover there's a lot of money out there it's just not going to people who need it so it's actually a brilliant time to start business recessions because it's like the forest fire a lot of stuff will die mm. and it creates space sounds a bit callous but it's just the nature of the capitalist economy that we all live within so and crowdfunding was hot and it's being a venture capital guy is very similar to publishing. Like publishers expect 80% of their books to lose money, but mm-hmm. they make so much money from the 20% covers all their losses. V And so I'm going to pitch VCs and they're like, well, you know, our model is we expect 80% of our investments to fail, but 20% of them make so much money covers all our losses. And I'm like, hang on, it's the same fucking industry. But of course, crowdfunding was really hot because Kickstarter was now flying and everyone was like, crowdfunding is this new thing. Mm. Raised fifty grand over breakfast from a guy who co-founded Bebo. Don't you remember that very
0: early social network? Yes, Paul Birch. I was not it, but I'm aware. Yeah, I do remember
1: it. Lovely guy, Um, and yeah, he gave us put fifty k in for ten percent. We built the site, launched, and Justin, of my friends, he lives around the corner, um, happened to be really good friends with Terry Jones, and he pitched Terry Jones what we were doing, And, and Terry was like, "This is great. I've got a book." I've been trying to sell this book for years and no one wants it. We're like, I'm sorry, a member of Monty Python can't get a book deal (laughs) because of the restrictive parameters publishers are imposing on their authors. Oh my God. So we were like, okay, this is a, we're obviously onto something and B, if your first book is from a Python, poor Terry died not that long ago now, but he was so supportive and so generous with us, gave us so much time. Um, So we launched with a book from Terry Jones and everything just kind of snowballed and we were I remember launching, we had no money in the bank, but we got an offer of investment of like three hundred and fifty grand landed in my inbox while we were at Hay on Y launching. We ended up turning that deal down because of the because of the um the the deal came with strings basically, which we weren't keen on. And yeah, so it was a hell of a ride. I spent I spent ten or eleven years doing it. And we did books like Letters of Note, which was a huge moment in the business. Our first major bestseller.
0: Um, so what was the, what, so the decision making on you know publishing a book? How did that? What was the? Just, just give a yeah, so of basically, yeah,
1: the way it works is. It was primarily for existing authors at the beginning because we felt there were authors with audiences and Mm. because of this new thing called social media, the authors tended to have a direct route to their fans Mm. and it was hard to see what publishers were adding at that point. So it seemed self-evident to us that if you could get authors in with networks and we could perform the publishing function and the tech function, we would be like the publisher of the future because not only would the authors... um, be able to sell direct to their fans. They'd be able to capture them. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to have a million Twitter followers, but you need to know the names and addresses of the three thousand people that will pay you a hundred quid for a book that mm-hmm. isn't going to come out for two years. You know that was the, our attitude. It was like, how do you find within the fan base the super fans? Yeah, Kevin Kelly did this thing called a thousand true fans around the time, which was like you get a thousand people that love your creative work to give you hundred quid a year. Mm-hmm. You've got good income. Yeah. So you take it. All you care about is those people. You give them what they want, and mm-hmm. then everything else comes out of it. So we were trying to harness that with crowdfunding, and it. So basically, we built a publishing house that could do all of the functions of a publisher, but we also had this smart direct to consumer platform. And the way it worked was, we worked out how much money you needed f- to make the book, and then you work out what the average pledge was, which in Unbound's case. I've been there for six months now, but before I left, it was around thirty-eight quid, which mm. is nine times average price paid for a book in a shop. So people are spending more money to feel yeah. closer to the authors. So say you need fifteen grand by a book to make a book, and you know a thousand people, and, you, and people are giving you fifty quid a pop, you need three hundred people. Yeah, which suddenly is like, well, that's not very many. Um, so that's how it worked. So authors will come to us going, I want to do this book. Publishers are saying no because they're idiots or because it's not what I normally do. Um, lots of authors had that situation where they were being sold and marketed in a particular area mm-hmm. as a particular crop and they wanted to do something out, left hand projects we called it. Yeah. You know, there's something in your drawer you really want to do. Like Jonathan Coe had this amazing fable which he wanted to do with this with Italian illustrator. And publishers were like, Well Jonathan Coe, you're a genius but we don't quite see how this sells compared to your other books. Yeah. And we're not quite sure about the illustrator. And we were like, you're Jonathan Coe, you can do what the fuck you like. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just help you do it. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of our, we just, Raymond Briggs, bless him, who died recently. You know, we did a book with Raymond Briggs and I remember he was, we rang him up to say, you need, uh, Raymond, you need to choose your end papers. And he was like, no one's ever asked me that before. I'm like, you're Raymond fucking Briggs. No one's ever asked you what M papers you want? Like, what? <laughs> so we, because we were authors, we were like, we're going to give you Rolls-Royce service, which isn't so we always did that, but that was our aspiration. Yeah. So we were like an all- author-owned publishing house that had this direct route to market. Mm. But the crucial thing was we didn't pay advances because we couldn't afford it. And we didn't you know. Publishers are basically banks. They take financial risks. And we didn't, you know, we didn't have that kind of money. So it was much more like an independent record label. It's a 50-50 profit share. So we made money if you made money. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm sort of far enough out of it now to look back on it, to be able to look back on it. Although it's still, I mean, it's doing brilliantly now, better than ever. Um, it's a brilliant new guy running it with John. Um, but, but for me, looking back, we did books that changed narrative around publishing. The Good Immigrant was an amazing book and... One did wonderful things and what was great for us was that it wasn't our success it was their success but yeah. we had created a platform that enabled them to prove to publishers that people wanted their work mm. and I'm really proud of the role Unbound played in facilitating them doing that for themselves because they did it themselves and that's where I felt like we had a real power mm. is that you know publishing is full of very specific type of person with a specific demographic mm-hmm. who you know can afford to work for not very good money because their parents live in London or yeah they come from they well, have enough money so that that's not their income so publishing is inevitably skewed in one direction and we felt that because authors were able to prove people love their work by attracting their followings on social media they didn't have to ask a publisher if they were readers for their work. They could already prove it, but they lacked a business model that mm-hmm. enabled them to prove it financially. Yeah. And I think that's, that's been Unbound's greatest success is that all the books I'm most proud of that we published were, were books that publishers didn't think would sell. Yeah. Even something like Letters of Note, which is a huge hit, publishers would have done it in a very different way to the way we did it because we spent way more money on it than a publisher would have done We did it in partnership with Canongate, who were fantastic, did a brilliant job. Jamie Bing especially, but the whole team there turned it into the hit that it was. But the book itself was made the way it was made mm. because we were working with Sean saying, what do you want, Sean? We weren't saying, no, you can't have that because it adds an extra 3p per copy. We were like, "We were, he wanted the book to be the best book for his fans. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to, he wasn't worried about that side of things. He wanted to give them a beautiful product. Mm. So it was, it was magic and I'm really proud of the fact that we created a place where creative people could not mm-hmm. well, call the shots because they were dependent on their audiences. And there are lots of parts of it that aren't perfect, but the pitch held true. And I think, um, yeah, I'm really proud of that. The, there are books that we did which wouldn't be wouldn't have been published were mm-hmm. it not for Unbound. Yeah. Um, I mean, all of them in lots of ways.
0: Yeah. I mean, we went, Laura and I have got on that shelf, we've got Chris Olinger's book. Yeah, well, yeah. And I mean, you know, I found myself recommending that to a lady on the train the other week who wow. just happened to be sitting opposite me. Oh, wow. who's, Who I overheard her saying about a friend being recently diagnosed with cancer. Oh, wow. Okay. And saying, you know, she was kind of, you know, she's up in good spirits. She was looking at that. And I just recommended yeah, that for I mean, so look at that, you know, that kind of ripple effect. Yeah, well,
1: that's know? an amazing, that's again, that's a fantastic story. Like, I actually met her at the Do Lectures. Mm. Um, she did a talk, and everyone was just like, Completely blown away. And then I wasn't in touch with her. I didn't, uh, didn't talk to her about her book.
0: And just for the listener, she man, she was diagnosed with cancer at a very young age, wasn't it? Her 20s?
1: Yeah, she had breast cancer in her 20s. And the doctors were like, you're too young to have breast cancer. It can't be that. Yeah. And by the time it was found out, it was... Well, I don't know the exact details, but she, at the do lectures, she was explaining how it spread all over her body. Mm. She's a walking miracle, but when... You encounter her, you can see she just has this power. She has this kind of aura. Um, but that's a really interesting example where that was a book that publishers didn't think needed to be published. Mm. And we did publish it. And it was a Sunday Times bestseller. Yeah. Um, and I know it means a lot to her and it meant a huge amount to us I'm bound to help her tell her own story. Again, title traditional mm. publishers would be like you can't yeah, call a
0: turd when I said it to the lady on the train you know, yeah. she kept sort of having to say sorry can you repeat that, yeah, I, don't that-, that- I don't think she was quite taken in that that's yeah. what I'd said yeah.
1: See, a <laughs> traditional publisher I shouldn't really speak for them but it's pr- I, think, I don't think it's that controversial to suggest that they would have told her that that's not an appropriate book title yeah. but we were like Chris if you want to call it that it's your story
0: it's, yeah.
1: you know, that's, that's how we are so um, yeah we've done and there, there have been lots of books that have had that kind of impact one of my favourites is Trans Britain, which we did, which was an anthology of stories of um, the struggle, the trans struggle. And again, a book that publishers were like, oh, we're not sure. That isn't, we're not quite sure about that. And Christine, who edited it, is a fantastic advocate and pi- pioneer in that space, mm. has worked tirelessly for so many years. She was like, no, no, there are, there's an audience for this book. And, and she's right. She was right. It yeah. is. So that I think that's one of the frustrations, of course, is that you do that and then not Christine or, or Chris specifically, but the, the, the way publishing works, they're looking for best sellers. So when you have a best-selling author, they'll immediately come along and say, well, oh, don't do it with Unbound next time. Here's a proper book deal with a nice big advance. Yeah. And that frustrated me in the, at the beginning. But over time, I got, I made peace with the fact that we were a place people f- used to change the industry. Mm -hmm. and that is I think I don't know if it's a grand claim or not but I feel that the presence of Unbound made the industry change Mm. Um, and I think that's something that our authors should be very proud of that they they achieved that Um, but it was definitely our business model it's the business model that facilitated it because it allowed everybody to club together with their 30 quids Mm. to produce something that the existing industry wasn't going to make Um, so yeah I think and there's a great story when I started Unbound I gave everybody a copy of Merchants of Culture by John Thompson which is this I don't I've never met anyone in the industry that doesn't say it's the best book on the industry but it basically tells the story of publishing uh, largely how it hasn't changed in hundreds of years Um, and I bought everyone at Unbound a copy of it Mm. and I'm about to start teaching at UCL and the first thing I'm telling my students is read this fucking book because it's basically the whole thing Um, and so it's on my bookshelf and I'm very proud of it, but John Thompson actually came to interview us because he was doing a follow-up called Book Wars. Um, and he came to interview John and I about Unbound and what we were doing and he was, you know, a really interesting guy. We gave him lots of stats and sort of forgot about it because academic publishing is slow. Excuse me, but a few years ago I got, I, it came out and I got one and I saw the interview with us about Unbound in his new book. And there was a wonderful circularity to the fact that he had been how I learned about the industry I was about to enter. Mm. And then Unbound became part of the story of that industry in the story that he was telling. And I, that's one of the few, one of, one of the moments where you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. We did do it. Like we did do something that was meaningful. You know, mm-hmm. we, we didn't solve publishing. We didn't fix all the problems, but we we made a meaningful contribution to the industry that we set out to change. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it's very odd not to be doing it. But it's. But I'm. I stopped doing it because I wanted to focus on writing my own books again, and I wanted mm. to. My creative calling was just too loud to ignore anymore.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that it sounds like, just from the little snapshot I've had of your role there, that it was very. Um, different to that would that be fair to say that, that, that you were, yeah, but you it's were
1: di- yeah it's, well it's different it's interesting like I'm fascinated by I got I did a book about politics around the Blair years when they used the Serious Organised Crime and Police Act to stop protests This was like supposedly anti-terrorist legislation that they began to use to stop protesters it's far worse now actually with the government's latest the, the Tory government's latest bit of legislation around protest is insane Um But in the course of that book, I spent a year hanging out with protesters, hanging out with politicians who were... Not not politicians, hanging out out with people who were interested in politics who weren't politicians. So lots of protesters, basically. And I ended that year, that journey of that book called I Fought the Law, feeling like if you wanted to change the world, you had to do it through business. Mm -hmm. Because politics was too broken. There just wasn't a way to connect your daily life with the machinations of the Westminster elite. There just wasn't... There was no link, it felt to me. Mm-hmm. Certainly the things I care about are not reflected. I have no voice in the constituency i live in to make that opinion recount. Like, there's no way... Because I don't vote for the... Well, of is, not,
0: is it not a system that's entirely based on um, remaining in power and getting re-elected? It's entirely careerist, isn't it? It's...
1: I mean, it's... God, it's a, it's a minefield. But my. the thing I hate about it the most is that the only way you've got a chance of being in our elected House of Government in Westminster is if you're in one of the main parties. Because there are, as far as I'm aware, no independents. Or if there are, there are people that were in a party and have left that party. So the first thing is if you want to be represented or you want to aspire to have your say and become an MP, you have to already subscribe to three ideologies. Mm. And in order to progress within the bureaucracies of those individual ideologies, whether it's Lib Dem, Labour or Tory, you have to behave in a certain way, which means you have to conform to what's already agreed by that hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So if I join the Labour Party and say I've got some new ideas, they're going to go, who the fuck are you? I don't care about you. We've got... This is how you progress within the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with the Tories and the same with the Lib Dem. So before you've even started the journey to try and become an elected representative you have, to sh- you have to fit yourself into a box that somebody else has created and my view is that the boxes these boxes of Tory Labour and Liberal aren't fit for purpose like, mm-hmm. they're completely anachronistic but in order to change the system you, have, you would have to go in and try and climb that greasy pole mm. by being a yes man and doing what you're supposed to say in, in order to get on to so maybe in 20 years be on a council and maybe in 20 years be selected to run a constituency. It's just like that just isn't representative democracy. How do you get new ideas into the system? It's, yeah. t- it's almost like it's built, as you say, to prevent change. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I left that book feeling like, okay, if I really want to change the world, I'm going to have to do it through business because that's where you actually change someone's life is right now. You can do it through business and I'm Bit of a socialist, not really, but I'm more of a socialist than anything else. Yeah. And so but I said, well, how, I can't run a business, because they're wankers. I can't be a fucking CEO. That's, like, that's that's something you have on the end of a name of someone who's a twat. Yeah. I'm not a twat. Um, but when I was a kid, I used to love skateboarding, and Howie's was my favourite brand. And um, uh, David Hyatt and Claire Hyatt founded Howie's. And they sold Howie's and started the Do Lectures and hired Denim, And I'm obviously fascinated by their story. And I looked at them and I thought, well, hang on. If, they're, if they can run a business, maybe I can run a business. And they were through them I discovered Patagonia and I discovered a whole different approach to business. Um, so in answer to your original question... it running a business wasn't creative in the sense of writing books, but I did see it as a creative challenge. Like how can I create a business that can change the world? Yeah. That has different values. And it was particularly obtuse to try and do that whilst taking money from venture capital funds (laughs) who were perhaps the opposite of that approach. Although that isn't true, actually. They're not, they're not as evil as people suggest. Some of them. Um, so I did see it as a creative challenge actually. Um, and I needed a job. You know, mm-hmm. I had kids, I got divorced around that time cause I felt like my life was not going the way I needed it to go to provide for everybody that needed to be provided for. And so business was like, it's a recession, it's a job. I know what I'm doing. I love it. You know, I was humble, but I had this punk attitude. I've never run a business before. Fuck it. I'll do yeah. it. Yeah, I'll be the boss. Yeah, no worries, man, I'll do that. <laughs> Having absolutely no idea what that meant. But again, the way I approached it was, okay, well, this is how I'm going to evolve as an individual. I'm going to evolve as an individual in the practice of running a company. Mm-hmm. So I was... And I wanted to run a different kind of company and I wanted to have a different set of values. and So it was really interesting and a real challenge. But yes, towards the end, the last sort of three or four years, um... I, I was losing who I was, definitely. And mm. I, I hadn't written, after the surfboard, I hadn't written anything. I actually reread the surfboard because I knew we were going to chat around that subject. And I read, there's a bit in it where I describe the labels I have and it's like father, husband, CEO, employer, and employee. And I was like, fuck, where's writer? That's who I am. But I was so in it, I'd yeah. totally forgotten about that part of my identity mm-hmm. which was the only mean like on my passport application on my children's birth certificates it doesn't say ceo of it says writer author because mm-hmm. i imagine 500 years down the line someone looking going oh he was a right like that's who i feel i am mm-hmm. and yet it wasn't in that little sentence which mm-hmm. i didn't notice at the time but i did notice rereading it the other day and yeah. i was like oh <laughs> telltale yeah so now i'm just so feel wonderful because I feel like I've achieved what I set out to do. With Unbound, I left it in a good place. Mm. It's flying. It's brilliant. People are there. It's doing better work now than when I was there. The future is very bright. But I feel like it's. I'm just really glad that it's what I did.
0: Yeah, and things have lifespans, don't they? I think this is this is a big thing I want to touch upon. Is that I think three. To four years that you said there, that I think that's a short time to be in that position because some people can go for decades feeling like that, they're not themselves or they're burned out or whatever. The totally, thing is. Yeah, I think absolutely. three, four years is a relatively short time to, to, uh, to, it shows a good level of self awareness to, to make such a big call because that is a big call. And, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, we, you know, it's, it's that classic thing of from the outside looking in people go, you know, what? Salary? Yeah, Security? No, well, yeah. All those all those things that can become prisons that are not entirely bad things but can easily become prisons. Um, that's, I mean,
1: that's definitely how it was. I mean, it, it made no sense from the outside mm-hmm. to leave. Um, it was, yeah, very well paid. Um, you know, I was the boss. So, although you're not really because you have a board who are the boss. Um, but you're... Yeah, I mean, I th- they they say, you know, you need to leave a business three or four years before you do. Yeah. I don't think I was that conscious of it back then. But rereading the surfboard, I was definitely struggling, was trying to work it, work out who I was and who I, you know, needed to be. But yeah, I, I agree. I think, I mean, the way I just described it to you and we were walking dogs was I felt like I had a prism over my eyes, and I was experiencing my life through that prism, and that prism was basically Unbound. So I'd be yeah. doing bath time with the kids, or at the weekend, even at the cinema, and I'd be everything I would be experiencing would be through the prism of what was going on with Unbound at that moment. Mm-hmm. And because you're the boss, basically everything that goes wrong is your fault, because either you fucked up, or you hired the wrong person, or, mm. you know, there's no one behind you. So you have to catch everything that everyone else misses. And you have to be bigger than everybody else. You can't lose your temper. You can't lose your rag. You've got to make sure it never runs out of money. So you're always thinking about when you're going to run out of money and burn rates and fundraisers. Now, my great uncle Irvin was a minor, so I'm not getting over stressed about how hard it was, but it's just constant. You're never escaping it. It's always in your consciousness.
0: Well, it's mental, which is a different type, type of yeah, exactly, intensity, exactly. isn't it?
1: And what, what I began to realise was that if I didn't take that prism off soon, I was going to forget it was there. Mm-hmm. And then I would be exactly, as you said, like 40 years down the line.
0: Yeah.
1: Who am I? Who, who was I again? Yeah. So on paper, it was insane giving up a big salary, regular job, at a time of total chaos in the world and massive recession and looming. Um, it made no sense. But on my instinctive sense, it was as obvious as the time I dropped out of university to work for free at a magazine devoted to laziness which is what I did with the idler and my parents were like what the fuck are you doing and you're up at university for the second time you've dropped out once you're telling me you're dropping out again yeah. to work for nothing
0: and a magazine about the very topic yeah, that's fantastic but, but again
1: at the time it was like why can't they see this is mm. the most obviously yeah. correct thing I could ever do
0: yeah.
1: I couldn't really articulate it in a way that was persuasive but for me it was like no no
0: well this is the cru- this is the crux and this is a big pillar of creativity and why it's so difficult for people to understand even themselves because it's it, I think you talk about it in the surfboard and it's that it's the pre linguistic instinct isn't it yeah exactly yeah. it's the it's the, it's just the the feeling and the certainty and people think you're talking bullshit or wishy-washy when you say things like that because we're so used now to have everything spelled out and articulated yeah. and, and yeah, yeah, justified. Yeah that when something is just right, you know, that whole thing, of, oh my God, he's left her off, she's left him. And it's like, yeah. it, you can't know that because you're not feeling it. So don't yeah, yeah, yeah. cast that. No, you,
1: I mean, by, you're right, by definition, you can't articulate it. There's, I did a lot of research for the idle travel around neuroscience and discovered that the part of your brain that makes decisions has no capacity for language. Mm-hmm. So you can't explain the decisions you make. You can just try and use language to articulate a hint of it in retrospect. Mm-hmm. So there's a different kind of knowledge that we have, of which I obviously agree with you, I feel like creativity is a component of. But there, my, I mean, that's what Spielzeug is. It's those signposts when you just know. Mm-hmm. You just know that something is the right thing. And I think when you encounter that in your life, if you're, as we've talked before, already, if you're in alignment with who you are, you notice them more, and they become signposts that you can follow. Okay, this is the way. It's a, or a compass, even. It's yeah. like... So that was my feeling. I was like, I've got to leave. And I told people I was leaving and at first it was a shock and over time everybody got their heads around it and it made sense. Um, But yeah, if I had to plot on a graph my reasons for leaving, there's nothing to put. No. And if I'm, if I had a cost-benefit analysis or pros and cons, it's only cons. Yeah. Apart from the wellspring of my being, which is the only pro you need really but yeah how do you get yourself in a place where you'll listen to that how do you trust that feeling Mm -hmm. they're all things you have they're skills you have to hone you have to you have to have lived you have to well you have to make those decisions to find out what they mean I think that's the it's a leap of faith in a way isn't it but you're right, though, you've got to let things run, find their own way. It's like a yeah. water finds its own way down a hill. Yeah. You know, you got to... But it's, it's, again, it's hard to have the confidence to let things be, isn't it? When I was agrophobic, I was living in Camden Town on Parkway um, in a real bad way. But one of the things I was doing was to try and walk further from my front door every day. And i like, have a panic attack and have to come home. But I would be trying to get further and further. And at the top of the road is Regent's Park. So like my real aim was to one day get to Regent's Park. Um, and I, one day I'd done it. I got to the park and I was walking back and I was like, no panic attacks. First time. Um, and there was a bookshop by, by my flat. And in the window was a copy of the Idler magazine, and I read it when I was a kid, like fourteen or fifteen. I wrote it in with a cheque, and they sent me some issues. And I hadn't seen it in years. They had Kramer from Seinfeld on the front cover, um, and I went in and I bought one because I hadn't seen it in ages. And because I always felt linked to the Idler in some way, and I get home and I am starting to read it, and I, as I'm reading it, I'm getting really depressed because I'm thinking, "Fuck, what I really should have been doing now." I think I was like twenty-two at the time. Like, if my life had been working, I'd be working at somewhere like the idler. Like, I wouldn't be in fucking flat with agoraphobia, having panic attacks all the time. Not being able to tell anybody I'm ill, because back in those days you didn't talk about mental health, so you just kind of suffered it in silence. And I thought, oh, fuck it, I'll ring him. I'll, I'll just ring him and see if I can get a job, mm. which was insane, because I couldn't leave the house without having a panic attack. But I looked, found the phone number, and then I looked at the address. And the address of the office was two doors from my flat. It was literally, if I looked out the back window of the bed, one of the bedrooms, I could see the office, because it was behind my flat. Next to the bookshop was an alcove, and you went down the alcove and there was an office block and that's where it was. So I rang them and I'm like, this is weird, but I love this magazine and I really want to work for you, um, can I work for you for free? And the woman on the reception, woman called Laura, was a bit of a hippie. And she was like, oh that's a brilliant story, yeah alright, I'll put you through to Tom. <laughs> So he puts me to Tom and tell the same story to Tom and he's like, oh, it's classic Tom. What? Oh, right, you know, really kind but slightly... Higher. And he's like, oh, right then, come and do two weeks' work experience. And I don't know where this came from, but I said to him, I don't want to do a two weeks' work experience. I want to do it every Wednesday. It's turned out to be the greatest moment decision of my life. I also didn't want to do two weeks because I was having panic attacks all the time. So I said, fine, all right, come on Wednesday. And I hung up the phone. And it was actually the only place I could have worked because I could, part of agoraphobia is you want to run home because you need to be safe mm. so what, where it stems from is that you don't have a, the anchor of security so that's why I panic attacks because whenever you go anywhere all you can think about your consciousness is completely subsumed by the need to be able to get home so you do a lot of running because you're suddenly be like I've got to get home and you run. Mm. Um, so it was actually the only place I could work because I could see oh, home oh, so I didn't oh. have to run there wow um, and, of course, because I said every Wednesday, I became useful. Mm-hmm. And I started to go and get them lunch to test how far, if I could go further down the road wow. to the place they wanted to get lunch. It took a lot of guts to offer to get them lunch because I didn't know where they were going to say I had to go. But that was part of, the cha- part of the pushing myself thing. But, of course, once this, once someone is in your office going and getting your lunch for you, and they started to give me bigger jobs and eventually they were like, okay, you've proven yourself. Do you want to work? Do you want a four-day-a-week, five-day-a-week job? And I was a bit like, no, because I'm really ill, actually. <laughs> the one thing about working for free is if I have to fuck off, you can't right. fire me. Too So again, that was a big push, but I took the job and then I met friends and it just gradually pulled me out of myself and then I did the website.
0: That's incredible.
2: Yeah.
1: But that's why I knew it was the right thing.
2: Yeah, because it know? was there.
1: Because it was like, the way I found it was like, you're supposed to do this, but mm-hmm. you're in a shit place. But there's this thing you need to do, and it's going to be really hard, but it's going to be so... I'm going to make it so clear to you that it's what you should yeah. be doing. You'll do it even though it's going to be hard, and yeah. which is what happened. It was like,
0: i oh, am fuck it. And it's just, it speaks to that, again, no one chooses adversity. You would shed it in an instant if yeah. you could. However, it's very valuable. It it drives you to places that would never otherwise happen and also forces whether it's your in your case the, the kind of frustration with not being where you felt you should, but I mean yeah God that's mindblowing. that's a mind blowing story. But yeah. But so but again it makes total sense to me that yeah. that, that would be there at that time and that you would make yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it's just so weird, isn't it? And you kinda of think and some said, Yeah, it's
1: just coincidence. It's like sorry, there's something it's yeah. not you can't. But whether it is it like or it
0: that. isn't, just the fact that you've interpreted and made those decisions accordingly. Who gives a shit whether it's yeah, yeah there, no, totally. in here? But I, I look back in my life,
1: and it's like if that hadn't happened.
0: Yep. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. When you're, I'm the same. There's this, there's a thread now that's run yeah. for my entire life. Not right. just talking career. I'm talking since a very young age. So, since I was old enough to see it. Right. The fact that the guy five dollars down at Sky TV and liked WWF and said to my dad, "Does, does he like Hulk Hogan? Who's Hulk Hogan?" Life changing, you know, (laughs) work for the WWE. It's like, you know, it's all that stuff. It's just continues to be my, you know, one of my biggest pleasures in life. You know, it's it's, it's, it's just, when you you start to see this over decades, that's when, you know, it's real. Yeah, and I I don't see it as fate.
1: I don't, it's not, I'm not fatalistic. I'm not denying my chance of making a decision. For me, they're gifts. That would be human arrogance. It's like, it's the crumbs again. It's like, here's a crumb for you to pick up. Now you're going to notice it. Are you Mm -hmm. going to be able to see it, or are you going to be... Is your consciousness so clouded because you're on this boat still heading a course you set 20 years ago, or are you going to really... And that's why mindfulness gets a lot of stick, but for me that's what it is at its core. Yeah, It's the ability to notice what's under your nose, Mm -hmm. which is... Really hard to do in our
0: culture and our, the way we live. Yeah. Uh, Whenever I've left a job and if I've left it's one of the greatest blessings in my life is that my parents have never questioned any of that. They've right. always, they've always always said to look just apply yourself and work out what you want to do, but make sure it's something that makes you at least not hate it because wow. you know the long career out there. You know, my dad worked at a household goods factory for the majority of his career. So the last ten years at a hospital where I was born, as like he started as a porter and it became this whole encompassing role where right. he was on one hand making toast for, you know, distressed old people right. to, uh, and just telling jokes. He's got a great sociable attitude. Oh, wow, oh, yeah. one liners yeah. to put them at ease, um, right through to he was the only person when he left because of I won't go deep into it, but you know, there's backdoor privatization and things like oh, okay. that going on, and I think. He was the only person by the time he left at the age of sixty-five that knew the medicine stores, where things were. Oh my can God! You, in a major, major hospital, and um, and God. it was so shambolic and, and the lack of communication between departments that that was the case. And it only wow. in the last week did they panic and start to like, you know, get better Somebody else, God. lives are dependent on so anyway. Going off track, but. So apart from those last amazing 10 years where he just really got to be the him in a role that yeah, flourished, which was a joy to see. Yeah. Um, he worked in a household goods factory, and he was fine with that. He got yeah. on with you know, the little football syndicate. He, was, he didn't need a lot. He he, he loved the fact that he could be. People find like,
1: ways, don't they? You that find absolutely. a way to make meaning in your life, whatever yeah. it is. Absolutely. And my mum was
0: a hairdresser, and in later years got into doing tarot readings and things. But she, um, but they, they, so they didn't know. My mum studied art at college, but never beyond the sort of BTEC level, right. and, and didn't really aspire to go beyond that, apart from making her own bits. So, so they didn't know about the industry, creative industry at all yeah. yet they supported wholeheartedly whatever I wanted to do because that's life's amazing. too short and it was that balance of lack of pressure and support that was everything um, for it's me ast- it's astonishing but it's rare
1: yeah I was going to say it's astonishing for parents to not it's like something I've noticed is that you you express your love by through fear and worrying <laughs> that's sort of <laughs> yeah. how we do is isn't it it's like uh, it's kind of strangely twisted but uh that's been my real amazing realization in the last ten years or five years or so is when you live from love, not fear, everything works, but we are so hard hardwired mm-hmm. to make fear based decisions. Well, oh. if I do this, that yeah. terrible thing's going to happen It's like well you don't know that, I and mean, you know it might but but don't but using that hypothesis to make it but that's how we're geared yeah. up right yeah so to have parents that but, and through love, like, you yeah, worry. Like, if I worry about my kids, well, do... Yeah, you may want to be a singer or a dancer, but why don't you get a degree so you've got something to fall back on? <laughs> yeah. It's very hard to explain that that is a fear-based decision that's bad advice when it's coming from such a positive place. Yeah. And I think that's... I think that's why creativity is so... Not taboo, exactly, but for those big life decisions. So you're a, that's
0: incredibly fortunate for you to have not been given that, yeah because i stumbled and i found my way you know i did yeah. like this little intermediate business course that i never finished in the year after and uh school and that was just to justify my existence because yeah. it was like i was doing one hour of art gcse a week because i'd done pe at school still deluded that completely united and it was um so i had to sort of stay on the year after everyone else and do the, the, the undignified late gcse thing and then it was like and the teacher didn't really want me there, because I'd drawn him offensively at school and all this stuff, and he yeah, was just oh kind God. of, oh, you can sit in the corner, and, <laughs> and he made me draw, he made me draw, he made me draw a uh, gun, I don't think he made me draw a gun, for cho- whatever reason I chose to draw a gun, but he made me do a drawing to show I was good enough to, to do art GCSE, and I think that was him kicking me in the bollocks after abusing him for two years <laughs> in, art, in, art, uh, in art lessons before GCSE. Anyway, he, um, mm-hmm. so I was just, an hour a week, I was like, well I can't do that, I don't have a- part-time job yeah, you know I've got. A, yeah, uh, yeah so I did sign up for this intermediate business course to justify my kind of my week <laughs> but but you know even then my parents were just like well you know he's school with doing something he'll find his way kind he'll of find thing. his way
1: that's amazing I mean because that's that's what I hope I can be with my kids is not express my love for them through fear-based advice mm-hmm. um, because the what I've realized in the last few months but I think I've known it for longer than that. But it's that if you if you make decisions, making decisions from fear is what fuels the thing you're frightened of happening. And it's again, it's a leap of faith. But if you can make decisions from a place of love, you're you're doing the opposite. You're fueling the likelihood of the thing you mm-hmm. want. That that's that's how my that's what my life has shown me. Obviously, can't prove any of that, but that's what. When I've made a love-based decision on an instinct, like Schrödinger or whatever, it's always been the right thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's never—I've never gone wrong. Yeah. Even when things have failed, like my first marriage, I still don't believe I went wrong. It was just—it was right at the time, but yeah, for whatever reason, didn't work out. So I—I I, I, even the things—they're not mistakes. They just another
0: story within your life, isn't it? Yeah,
1: I think it's where you had to go to get the perspective you have today on who you've become, Yeah, right? It's a kind of, it's... So, yeah, those making those love-based decisions is always, in my experience, the right thing to do. But it's very frightening and difficult when you've grown up in a fear-based society, a decision-based society that uses fear yeah. as a compass. And there's a lot to be frightened of, especially right now. But that's, again, why you need it. Mm-hmm. You need the love decisions right now more than ever.
0: 100%. Well, um, so but I wanted to. One thing I did want to touch on. Of most things now. Let's to chat to you about. But one was, you're like a you know the, one of the masters of idling, given your previous book and connections and everything. And I think there's great value in that. I was Oh, Idle it, Pleasures. Idle Pleasures, yeah, that's the one, I it, sorry, yes. Tom, yeah, 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 of course. And it just it struck me as so a book so sadly out of time in the best way, you know, not 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 that's not a slight on the book, that's just a, it's a slight on the pace of modern life. And I think there's so many lessons in in that and idling. And I met you at a time when you just left yes. unbound And seemed very at peace with idling in the best way, as in taking some time to work things out and so yeah, okay. starting your book. Is that fair? Is that, is, is that fair? And it is, I think I would preach it so much to people in the creative industries because we're all just so hung up on the next project, the next deadline. What are you doing? Yeah. Who's it for? What's it going to look like? And we trap ourselves so much from just those, like you said, tapping into that, that otherness, that feeling that something's right and you're on the right path. Yeah. You have to take a step back to allow that to happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, God, it's a really big one. One of the reasons I love The Idler is because I felt like, I mean, it's a, it's a magazine literally devoted to the art of doing nothing, that the idea that busyness is a virtue um, is, just, is just how we're controlled by people that want to exploit us, essentially. And it goes, and it's really interesting. So I, it's, it's what I always felt as a, I've always been lazy my parents called me Danny Dormouse when I was little because I used to fall asleep. <laughs> I used to hate homework to the point where if I had homework that had to be in, I would do it the last minute to the point where I would get up at four in the morning on the day it had to be handed in and do it in a daze because like, I just <laughs> couldn't. And I was brought up to think this was a deficiency in my character. But when I have met the idler guys, it was like, no, this is my superpower because when you're not doing when you're doing nothing you are doing something you're thinking mm-hmm. and that's really important <laughs> to be conscious of the fact it's like it's like mindfulness before mindfulness it's basically saying slow the fuck down because mm-hmm. the slower you go the more you see um but what was brilliant about the idler was that i met a i came across amazing writers and their, their way of expressing it you know god was the ultimate idler You worked six days and rested for eternity. (laughs) You know, work was hard work. The virtue of hard work is something that was used, you know, the priests said it on the pulpit when they were trying to get people out of the villages and the countryside into the new towns. There's this kind of myth of hard work and idleness itself has become really maligned over, over time. And we live in a culture which, can't stand the idea of it. It's like the ultimate insult if you say someone is idle. It's, you're really saying mm-hmm. there. They lack character. But no, for me, I'm very. I'm I'm at peace with doing nothing because it isn't nothing. It's mm-hmm. the most important. It's it's how you charge yourself up. How you. I mean, it's like I mean, I was reading the. Tim Ferriss' book about how insane it is to have a life based on retirement, because you're you're going to spend all your good years working and saving, so that you, when you're old and you can't do anything, you've got money. Yeah, and it's like, well, that makes no fucking sense at all. It's like some weird
0: fable. It's bizarre, right?
1: Yeah. It's just totally insane when you actually stop thinking about it. And he was like, "Well, you, what people should do is, you, what you should do is have year retirements throughout your life, which, of course, is an ancient Jewish tradition called a sabbatical." And that's kind of what I, that's why I was in such good spirits when we first met, because I'd just left Unbound, to basically have a year off. I'd worked hard and was fortunate to be able to afford to do that. Um, But again, most people would have said, well, put the money off your mortgage and get another job straight away. And I was like, no, 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 I need, I need a year of doing nothing to find out who I am again. Because I, obviously I am myself, but you get so wrapped up in what you're doing. And the way you can tell whether you're in a dangerous place is when you think what you do matters. (laughs) Like I got to the place where I felt like without me, the whole thing would collapse Mm -hmm. and I had no choice and I was, I had to be selfless and I had to be humble and I had to like, just give over my life to this thing because it needed me. Mm -hmm. And that's when you know you're far too deeply involved in something because it, of course, you know, I left, and it's yeah. bad, doing better than it was. Uh, it didn't need me. I mean, it needed me when I was there, and I'm, I'm not denigrating my achievement. It's just you can tell yourself a story
2: mm-hmm.
1: about how much you must sacrifice yourself. Suffering is virtue is where it comes from. I mean, it's, you know, there's a guy on the cross in all of our imaginations, and that's the... Suffering is virtue is the greatest evil. In fact, I read a brilliant thing that... Um, idleness... It's one of the seven deadly sins, is laziness or idleness, whatever. Sloth. Sloth, um, but it's not with one. That's not the original one. The original sloth. It wasn't called sloth. It was sadness. Really. And it was to knowingly live in sadness. That was a sin against God to knowingly live in sadness, and it was it was twisted into sloth. Wow. By people that wanted us to work hard oh. doing something we hate because they were making more money. And when you learn things like that, you're like, knowingly living in sadness is a sin. Well, that actually feels like a sin.
2: Yeah.
1: It feels like a sin to the well of my soul. But it's portrayed as virtuous by the people out there that want me to work and are calling me layabout and work shy. And, it's like, and so I, it's the compass thing. Idleness was the compass that led me into a whole way of questioning and thinking and being curious about the things we assume to be true about the world we live in. Um, so yeah and what I found when I gave up drinking I found I loved it but the people around me couldn't handle it because it was like it was making a comment about their life choices so people find it very difficult Because like veganism or right
0: it's a kind of yeah it's another warven yes bullshit
1: thing. yeah yeah what statement are you making about my life choices and when you're not making Um and it's the same thing I tell people taking a year off and they're like I couldn't afford to do that, and I said, "Well, yeah, but you—how <laughs> much money are you spending on your pension? Like you're choosing—you're you know, choosing it because it's accepted wisdom that it's the right thing to do." Well, I, I'm actually spending a year of it of the money, and people are just like, "What?" But it's been—it has taken me five, to six months to work at who I am again, mm-hmm. and to—and I'm being so creative. Like the writing is—I mean, I've just got so many things. I'm now doing—I'm getting emails unprompted from people saying, you're not writing any books at the moment, i.e., My publisher in Germany emailed me and said, you're not, not have to be working on anything, are you? And I said, well, actually, yes, I am. And that's really fortuitous that you should reach out to me because I'm looking for things. And, um, but yeah, so I'm very relaxed mm-hmm. because I, I see it as almost like the kind of, it's a bit like meditation. Meditation is the one way of being lazy that's not seen as being negative. Um, but just having some time when you're off but you're not on holiday and you're not planning your next thing you're just off at home it feels like a gap year at home that's what it feels like and it turns out that's incredibly rewarding mm-hmm. um, because you just have that yeah, you just have that time to be so I've, I basically see it as a year of meditative I mean, I'm not doing nothing. I've got kids to look after, and Isabel's got my yeah, wife's just got you're, a new you're job.
0: You'll live It's not that like you sat there with your mouth open exactly on the that. couch, is it? You know, yeah, you, yeah. I'm very
1: busy, but I'm just not doing something that society deems to be yes, contributive. The accepted
0: yeah, use of your working week. Yeah,
1: to the growth of the British
0: economy or whatever. Um, I mean, to be at peace with that is a victory in itself, you know, because like for those reasons we just said, you know, it's that. It's. Um, it's something I keep bringing up on recent shows and something I'm quite fascinated by but there's a book called Into the Woods by John York yeah okay about storytelling and the reasons why we still tell stories and um, you know Humans do that, and, um, and it's, it's about Jungian psychology and about the the, the, the foundation of good mental health is about the assimilation of all the good and the bad within. You know, and it's right. and it's again, it's that it's not it's not not it's not neither good nor bad. It's yeah. just it's being, and it's and, it's, and yes. like I say it's listed it's allowing the subconscious to process the, the obscene amount of things that we put in our head yeah, yeah. on any given day, yeah. so that it can come out at its right time in the right way.
1: That's very wise. I mean, I I, I realized not that long ago that the mental health struggles I've had in my life were things I've come to terms with rather than recovered from. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important distinction. Um, it's what I'm doing is basically a course correction. Mm -hmm. You know, imagine your life as you're in a boat on the sea and you've got you're heading in that direction, but you never check your compass to make sure you're still going in that direction. Well, that makes no sense. Um, but if you're in the middle of something and you're busy with it con- and it's consuming your consciousness 24-7, then you are basically in a boat without checking your compass. Yeah, You're just heading off in the direction yeah. that you thought might have been the right thing 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah. So actually to just stop, but in order to be able to course correct, you've got to free your consciousness from all of that shit. Yeah. So you have to get out of it. And I was talking to a friend who's thinking about a similar thing. And he's like, yeah, but I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm like, no, no. But it's the leaving that enables your brain to get to a point to work out what it is yeah. you're going to do. There's no way you can know it now because you're still in the thing. Yeah, You've got to get out of the thing for long enough for the path to reveal itself, which, again, is very counterintuitive and hard to justify. But it's
0: a trend completely different, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think makes sense at a core level.
0: Yeah, and once you feel that there's no going back once you feel that's, that's real That is to, the thing
1: once you've done it once you've made a big decision it was like for me leaving university to get to the idler the minute that happened I was like okay well this is fine so when it the thing about Unbound was like everybody was like you never run a business you don't know what you're doing you've worked for a, you worked for a magazine about being lazy like you are, there's no fucking way you're going to make this work uh, three years later I've got VCs telling me you're you're the archetypal and um, you like eccentric founder you've completely jettisoned everything normal yeah. which is what it requires is required to be an entrepreneur you can't do it if you've got an MBA because you're already broken in the attempt to fix yourself and the other thing you don't do is you go hang on I set this course when I was 23 and I didn't know shit exactly. why am I still following the same course Yeah, why am I not course correcting just to check
2: yeah.
1: and that that is the biggest gift of what I've done actually is just giving yourself the gift of time to be. And I'm so thankful that I'm doing it at 47, not 67. Yeah. And it's, so that's the true luck or gift or fortune is to just have made a decision to do this at a time when I can course correct. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. It's fascinating, isn't it? But but the thing I'm most am most interested about, which is what I'm writing about at the moment, is that all the things I thought I would get by being rich and famous. Mm. I'm not quite sure what that is, but that's the thing. I've, all those the feeling, how that would feel, is what I've spent my life aiming for. Like I would, f- if I'm rich, not so much famous, but if I'm rich. I'll have this feeling that I want, and what I my absolute epiphany and life changing thing is that feeling, it turns out it's in giving yourself time to be yourself. Yeah. I feel as though I'm rich. I don't have lots of money. I've got enough for a bit. We're fine. But (laughs) I don't have millions of pounds. I don't have hundreds of thousands of pounds. Yeah. Um but I feel the way I thought I would feel Mm -hmm. if I sold a man for twenty million quid or whatever. Yeah. And realising that the feeling you want to feel is not in the thing you think it's in is my currently my greatest realisation. Yeah. Because what's amazing is that where I thought it was was a long way off and out of reach. And where it is, is very close to me and within reach. Mm-hmm. And that is a profound learning. Yeah. That it's here. Actually, you just have to give yourself the gift of time Yeah. To,
0: to go back to um, my, my and Andy's project, the lyric I chose. We did two pieces on Ian Brown here. These two amazing images, and the lyric I chose for the main Ian Brown one was from "Breaking Into Heaven" on the second Sun Rose's album. And, uh, right. and the lyric is my, maybe even my favorite lyric, but it's um, you, basically you don't have to wait to die. You can have it all anytime you want it. Yeah. Um, the kingdom's all inside yeah thought, oh, that's, that's exactly that, it that's exactly that's it, it, it that people but, spend a no like, lifetime yeah, thinking about either after they die or yeah. i've got to reach i've got to work hard to get because yeah, yeah, yeah. this thing on the horizon no no no. it's always around you it's see gentle. that's and that's such a fascinating thing because i've read that sentiment so
1: many times and we we're talking earlier about how the bit of you that realizations decisions has no capacity for language no matter how hard you try articulating that thing, you can never make somebody feel it, right? And no, that's you what you and I are spending our lives trying and failing to do, is to communicate the uncommunicatable through our artistic endeavour, yeah. right? And we know we're never going to really manage it. We might get the <laughs> sentence in a lifetime, but it's a flow state. It's enough for us to feel yeah. like we're getting closer to being able to articulate that fundamental human truth. Yes. Now... Exactly. And that's why experience and doing things like Unbound, which I didn't think I was going to do or running a business or whatever, is so crucial because you can steer people with language. You can try so hard to communicate it. But it's experience that gives you the feeling of what you just said. That means I now know what he means. I could have you could have said that to me before I'd worked this out about through experience that the thing I most thought I wanted that was over there is actually right here. Mm-hmm. I could have heard those words a million times and not felt it the way I do now through the fact that I've experienced it by pushing myself out of my comfort zone, yeah. which is where which is where the feeling is. There's, there was a line in Gatsby that completely changed my life, which uh, which was, I was ten, I was ten years too old, too old to lie to myself and call it honor.
0: Yeah, fantastic. <sighs> yeah,
1: but all these amazing writers are dropping these crumbs, leading us to these this knowledge, and, and you and I, we're like. We're, t- we're there trying to put our crumbs in with everybody else's crumbs to just try and, st- and steer people to these, th- yeah. this awareness. Yeah, because it's a beautiful feeling. And it's... Um, which is why it's so... It's the only way to live. Yeah. But everything around us is kind of... You've got to fight to be confident enough.
0: Well, to come full circle. It's the old rich white man. Thing, yeah, you know, right. isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, the, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the patriarchy, and it's the and it's the everything constructed for this tiny percentage of people yeah. to have us all laboring under something yeah. completely false and yeah. goes against our nature.
1: And I think that's why I'm optimistic. Going point, is because I think more and more people are making these discoveries. Yeah, and they're not based on education mm-hmm. or life opportunity. Yeah. They are. That's what I love about human wisdom, is that. It, it is um, you'd have to level up human wisdom. Yeah. Some of the wisest people you will ever meet will have had no education or come from cultures that you'd, you know, I remember I've had my life turned upside down by people saying things to me, who I considered to my, to be below me in socioeconomic and opportunity terms. So that's what I love about that stuff. The in fundamental truths of human existence, you know, the richest, most successful person on earth can be a million miles away from what that really means, from yeah. real, really meaningful stuff. So endeavor in that sense, uh, that, which is one of the, I'm writing a book about being an entrepreneur. And one of the stumbling blocks for raising money is we all think wealth is an indicator of some kind of virtue. It's actually the least reliable indicator of any virtue. wealth, because it's so easy to cheat and get it without having to. So it's a terrible metric which is why you shouldn't be intimidated by people with money. Yeah. Because when you think about it, it's the worst metric ever to admire mm-hmm. somebody or feel deferential to them. Um, but we're sort of wired in to be subservient to people with that. Yeah. And you've got to examine the metrics. And, well, that's a terrible metric for that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, wisdom is, it's it's the leveller because it's, and that's why I'm optimistic, because yeah. you don't need anything other than to be a human yeah, to work out the fundamental truths of being human
2: yeah uh,
0: that's exactly it. and despite the whole this, this, you're absolutely right And despite all the shit that's going on at the minute sadly it's, there's going to be a lot of levels and I think um, and, and there's going to and you know like, it's not It's not. I'd go from feeling worried but then like you say also, I am a natural optimist too and yeah. I think that ultimately steers me through and once I tap back into that magic yeah. magical feeling but it's, the... it's like yeah that's why I keep writing and I keep believing that it's going to have It's gonna, you know, the thing. The the fact is, if it gives that feeling to one other person or leads somebody to that feeling, then that's a great victory in my life. So whatever, I have nothing to lose. And that's
1: when you know your crumb. Someone's found your crumb. Yeah. Like I've had not many, but I've had emails from people saying this, you know, surfboard changed my life, or the trampoline, or this book made me think about something in a different way. And you're like, and it's like, "Ah," and you get the feeling of someone's picked up your crumb. It's incredible, isn't it? And it's like, okay, that's that's enough. Yeah. It turns out that's the feeling I wanted. Yeah, And it's not in Instagram followers
0: or right kind of having a touch. holiday in
1: that place. Or
0: We all occasionally get waylaid by that stuff, but it's really important to remain mindful of it and yeah. that it's all false. Thank you to Dan for spending the time to talk creativity and his work with Unbound as a writer. and I'm very excited to see where he heads next because I know that he's got new projects underway, new book deals, new personal projects. and. Yeah, I can't wait to see what's next for a very interesting character. Um, I've been working myself on the Creative Condition book, which is going to be coming out very soon. It's going to have excerpts from this podcast, but it's a whole deep dive into the nature and behavior of creativity. And it's my second nonfiction book that comes off the back of champagne and wax crayons, which came out, ooh, seven years ago. 2015. Very proud of that book. Um, It's on offer at the moment, over at bentallenwriter.com. Five off the cover price, so go and grab yourself a copy if you haven't already read it. Um, Very excited about The Creative Condition. Very different kind of book to Champagne. Still got my voice, but I'm up to 65,000 words. And it could be a monster, this one, because there's so much to cover. And um, the reason I'm talking about that is and once again in a quiet spell much like I was when I got frustrated and wrote champagne and wax crayons and it seems to be having a similar effect with the creative condition. Um, these quiet spells never get easier as any of you guys listening will will likely know. You always challenge yourself to go and put the time to good use but the reality is you're, you're panicking financially you're wondering if it's all come crashing down why am I unemployed again <laughs> and it's tough Um, So that's where I'm at at the moment. I'm also working on stories for The Apocalypse Number 2, The Cost of Living, which is going to be coming out hopefully before the end of this year. Pretty soon, I'm hoping. I've got one story left to edit and then it's going to be coming out. Some more dark fiction coming on there. Collection of, I think, nine stories, this one. Working towards a four-volume collected 30-odd story fiction collection. Very exciting stuff for me as an author. Just of the works that's coming in soon, so <laughs> get in touch if you like my messy style. Anyway, thank you guys. Thank you to Illustration X. Go, go check them out over at IllustrationX.com or we are IllustrationX on social media. Big thank you once again to Dan Kieran, my guest today. We've got Ollie Hurst, Illustrator, coming up, along with a whole new range of guests. Keep listening. Subscribe. Drop us a review. Please do support the show over at Spotify or apple podcasts wherever you get these things or just on the good old soundcloud forward slash creative condition have a great week guys take care speak to you very soon